You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson dealing with rejection, Philip Edwards will explain the part we have to play to appropriate what Christ has done to set us free from rejection and walk in his footsteps. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome this evening. This is our fourth and final uh, section on rejection. Uh, we've learned quite a lot over the weeks and we've come to this final stage, which probably is the most uh, important. It's a un- good understanding uh, what the Bible says and then where we've come from and how it's created and formed. But now we come to actually how God himself has dealt with this very big problem. Let's just pray before we uh, start teaching this evening. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your precious word again. We've gathered, Lord, to hear and to understand. And Lord, we pray for, uh, for the Christian church as it struggles with uh, this problem of rejection and uh, how it binds them from really expressing the love of God and being able to love one another. We pray, Lord, that this word will go forth and touch the hearts of many that just need to hear the truth to be able to be set free and to walk in the liberty that you won for them on the cross. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Dealing with rejection. Well, of course, God has dealt with everything. The problem is that sometimes we are slack in understanding or availing ourselves of all that God has done for us. The responsibility... uh, if we suffer from anything, it's not that God would just automatically do something in us, but we have to respond to what God has said. If you go to a doctor and you know that the doctor has the solution to your problem and he suggests the sort of medicine you should take, but then you even get it from the chemist, but you never take it, well, you can't say it's the doctor's fault. You can't complain that you're not improving or getting well. It's... One thing to say, I know the answer to problems that we have. Another thing to apply ourselves to take the medicine, to go through the steps that Christ has set out for us in his word. As Christians, we can't be passive. We can't think that God will do something for me. God will do this. God can see my problem, see my situation. He'll just somehow supernaturally work in my life. That's not how it works. Faith is what God requires of us and faith is something that is active. We have to appropriate uh, the word of God and what God has done for us into our lives. To take for one's own use what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. Then it's It's our responsibility. That's what I want to be dealing with tonight. What is our responsibility in stepping free from this thing that can almost um, poison, destroy, hamper our Christian life? 
we have a part to play in becoming whole and being healed. We need to answer for our conduct, for our behaviour, for our feelings and for our actions. They're ours, they're nobody else's. And so if we see within our own life there is something that is not right, that it's, we're, we're reacting in the wrong way, we're feeling bad about something, don't look around and blame everyone else. Look to yourself and say, what is it that I've got to do to bring about change? God has done everything he can do. Through Christ's death on the cross, everything is accomplished for us. What do I need to do to appropriate these things that he's done for me into my life? My feelings, bad or upset or afraid, uh, is no excuse for my sin oh, I'm rejected and so I feel this way and so I do this thing. That's what we're going to deal with tonight. You haven't got the right and liberty to do that. You can't make an excuse for yourself. Personal accountability in this Christian life is always crucial in, in every area of this life. We're personally accountable. Uh, why should I hurt? Because somebody has done something to me that's not right, but I don't have to live with that hurt. I can walk free of it. As we see this and we own it, we own the responsibility that we have, the process of healing can start to take place. It doesn't rest with anyone else, it rests with us. He's done the work, we're suffering the problem, it's between him and me. And I have to do something to appropriate what he has done and bring it into my life so I can walk in liberty and freedom. Whenever you receive revelation or understanding from God's word, this is, mm, this could be say, well, I'll stop coming to the Bible school anymore. As soon as you receive revelation, you become responsible for what you know. That's, that's as simple as that. You, and God will expect you to take responsibility for what you know. We have God's word. Here it is. If I don't open the pages and read it, I still have the word. We don't get away with saying, I didn't know, I didn't know all the time. We're well educated in this country. We have thousands, millions of books that we can turn to, great teachers, and, and we had, don't have an excuse. Some places of the world, they have very little. And so God would take all of that into account. But we've been free and educated with the things of God for centuries, really. We need to take account of that in our lives. God assumes that we will read it. He assumes that we will put faith in it and it will, uh, it will be active in our lives. You know, if you go to a court of law and, and the judge says, you broke the law and you say, well, I didn't know it was the law. You're not going to get away with that. You're supposed to know the law. I mean, that's not his responsibility. That's ours. If you break the highway code, well, you're supposed to have read it and you're supposed to abide by it. And if you break it, well, you break it. You say, well, I didn't know that doesn't get anywhere. And this applies to the Christian life as well. If we don't know, that's not an excuse. We should know. Jesus makes 
that very point. Uh, remember when he went to his hometown and he stood to preach to the people and he preached that passage from Isaiah. He took it and opened the scroll and he read it. And this is what he read. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of the sight to the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He stood and made this declaration. What was he actually saying? They knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, I am the Messiah. I have come. I have come to bring in the kingdom of God. It is established today. He says, he goes on to say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. So what he was saying to those people, you people that have heard this today, you haven't got an excuse. Whether you believe it or not, that's up to you, but there is no more excuse for you. Isn't it wonderful he came first to his people, to the people in his own community, in his own town as it were, to tell them who he was, to declare it to them first. Today, he said, this prophecy, this prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled here through me today. Today you have heard it. Today you're accountable for what you hear. And we know they did hear, didn't they? And they understood exactly what he said. And we find that they responded. <laughs> they didn't respond in the way that they were meant to respond. It says, as we read on, it says all of the people, they were furious with what they had heard they clearly understood what Jesus had said. They drove him out of the town, it says. They took him to the brow of a hill to throw him off the side of a cliff. They heard, they understood, and they responded. But unfortunately, their response was not what it should have been. You see, when we hear the word of God... When, it, when we know that God is speaking to us, the speaking the truth to us, we don't have an option to believe or not to believe, to accept or to reject. As we hear the word of God, the only option that we have is to receive it and to receive it in such a way that we believe it, that a transformation can take place in our lives. We hear a thing once, then we have to hear it again. And again, and again, and again, and again. And we go to church week after week after week. And the truth comes and comes and comes. And eventually, we realise truth. We realise what God is doing. And so as we submit ourselves to teaching or to reading the scriptures or to reading uh, other books that, you know, uh, people have written prior to that who have worked through stuff, as, as we take it on, it starts to transform our lives and to change us into the people that God wants us to be. We have a responsibility then first. The Father heart of God, that's an expression that's uh, it's here to stay now. Quite a number of books and courses are written about the Father heart of God. Many people's problems with re rejection, it starts with their parents. We've learned this over the weeks. It starts in the home, in their childhood. Even the testimonies that we've heard, uh, they talk about in their childhood growing up and the problems that they had. If we have a problem with our 
not just our father, but our mother and our father, because remember, God is both a mother and a father. It's our parents. They're, they're both together in this. If we have a problem with them or with one of them, our ability to relate to our Heavenly Father is a problem. It's a big problem because we don't know how to relate to him. It's a shame, really. And yet it's so common in people's lives. We see God in the same way as we see our parents. How else could we relate to him? How else would we understand? We just start at that point. And of course, as we read deeper into the scriptures or we hear teaching, we realise that this God is, is nothing like our earthly God. Even if we had a, a good one, God is far better than that because God is perfect. God, God the mother then, he wants to show us tenderness and love as a mother shows tenderness and love to the child. The father, when he loves the child, he brings strength and security into the whole thing. So both the parents, representative of God, provide different things for the child. The child will grow up strong and healthy and secure in this parenting. God's not distant. For so many people, God lives in heaven. He sits on a throne. He judges when we do things wrong. They go through the whole Christian life, some people, they say, God never speaks to me. God is distant from me. And so they live their whole life, as it were, separated from God, whose desire is to be intimate and personal and close to us, always present in our lives. That's what God wants to be. That's what he is. Because it's, again, our response to him that makes all that very possible. We're encouraged in the New Testament to call him Abba, uh, a Hebrew word for father. It isn't used by children, it's used by adult children, grown-up children. It's an affectionate term. It's a, it's a term of warmth and uh, familiarity and respect at the same time for their father. That's how God wants us to look at him. Warm, affectionate, close, personal, and yet we look at him with respect because he is who he is. And so we're told several times in Scripture, it says in Romans 8 and 15, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba. Father, see a spirit of sonship. He is our Father. We are His Son. Again in Galatians it says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. I like this verse better than the first one. Because we're sons, He sent the Spirit of His Son into us. And so just as Christ was the Son, we have received that same Spirit. And so everything that Christ experienced and knew and realised about his Father, we can because his Spirit has come into us. I thank God it's not an intellectual thing. 
because many of us wouldn't make it, would we? We would fail dismally. But it's not a question of what we know. Thank God for the brains that we do have. But it's what we experience. It's what we know. You know that you are a child of God. That's vital and important. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls Abba, Father, Abba, Father. I remember as a teenager, I was in a prayer meeting and I think someone must have prayed these words with Abba, Father in it. And it so struck me, I couldn't stop saying it. It was like, once I said, oh, Abba, Father, and then there's Abba Father, Abba Father. It was like the Spirit of God was saying, yes, Philip, you've got this now. I want you to repeat it a thousand times, you know, like writing lines. And so I said it over and over and over again. Isn't it wonderful when the Spirit of God does amazing things to us? He's our Father, you see. God the Father is seeking to give us what he gave Jesus. I say he's seeking to give it to us. He's not holding back. He has made it available to us, but we have to appropriate it. I'm coming back to that word. We have to, by faith, receive it into ourselves. We hear it again and again, and it becomes a living reality. He wants to give us the security that he offers his children, the permanence of never leaving us, always being with us, the peace he brings, the emotional stability, the affirmation, the acceptance that he never withdraws it as we've entered into this relationship with him. But unfortunately, this thing called rejection is a barrier to all of that. It's a barrier that is within us and it's our responsibility to remove it. And I'm going to suggest to you, if you know it's there, and you know that Christ has done everything he possibly can do to remove it, and you don't remove it, that's sin. It's sin. Because you're denying or rejecting what Christ has done for you. It says in Mark chapter 1, 10 and 11, it says, as Jesus was coming out of the water, this is uh, the account of when he went to be baptised by John in the Jordan. It says, as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven, I love this expression, torn open. God tears heaven open and the spirit descending on him like a dove as a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased, he said. It's as though God's in his heaven in the imagery that we have. And he's so delighted in his son he tears, he tears heaven open and he shouts out of heaven, I am so delighted with you. And see, we are in Christ. And so in the same way, he tears heaven open and he shouts down, in my case, Philip, I'm delighted in you, my son. I'm delighted in you. I want you to know that. He wants us to know how much he loves us. 
See, just reading it on a page once won't get you there. You have to live in it, meditate it, accept it, believe it, confess it, and just know it. It becomes a living reality within you. That means then our identity, and our identity is who we really are, who we are on the inside, is found in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's the primary identity that I have in this world. We have many identities as husband or wife or father or mother or son or daughter or friend or colleague and all these. And people have a different idea and they would give us a different description of our identity. And if we listen to what other people say, we could form who we are from what people are saying. But we must form who we are from our identity with him. See, because every other, every other identity would be below par compared with his identity of me who he says that I am. I understand that he loves and accepts me and he does you, just like you are. Now that's challenging, you see, because people, if we don't act positively towards them, they give us a false identity of ourselves. But God gives us our true identity, who we are with all our flaws, with all our difficulties, with all our problems, he says, you're a child of mine and I love you. And that finishes it. It's got to finish that for us. <laughs> because he accepts me and loves me and he defines my identity, I then accept myself, even with my shortcomings and my problems and my difficulties and all the funny bits about me. I love me. Now, it doesn't mean um, I don't want to change. Of course I do, but I don't concentrate on that. I know that he will change me. He will, in the process of his discipleship, which he has taken the responsibility on personally to do, he will transform my life into the character of Christ. Meanwhile, I accept me as I am. I see the bits in me I don't like, and I'm not content with them. I want them to change, but that doesn't mean I'm going to dislike myself in the process. That means if I love me like I am, I love you just like you are. And that's it. Now, there's funny bits about you. I know that. But it doesn't matter. You see, I choose to do what my father does because I'm a son of my father. And I think, you're all right. Now, this bit might be a bit weird and this bit might be a bit strange. But I tell you, as far as I'm concerned, I love you. Do you have to change? Not one little bit. You don't have to. I'm going to love you like you are. That's simply the way it is. So if we practice that, we understand how God does that. But if we don't practice it, we'll never understand that God loves us. 
And he said, well, if I can improve, will you like me more? No, you don't have to bother. You don't have to be a nicer person. You just be you. You say, but I'm awful at times. I don't mind. You just be you. If you need to change, well, God will change you. I won't change you. It's not my job to change you. My job is to love you and to accept you in the same way that God loves and accepts me. If we're going to receive healing or deliverance from this rejection, we will probably have to sit for some time with some people who know how to minister to people and can help you with the whole process. Um, I don't like quick fix prayers because they don't fix anything. It doesn't happen. Now, I understand if someone's preaching and at the end of a sermon they might call people forward for a response and you might go. And that's, that's not a bad thing. You are responding to the word. You've been given opportunity to say, Lord, you've spoken to me and now I'm showing you that I'm responding. So you go forward. But 99 times out of 100, whatever's prayed for you is not going to fix it. It's not going to do it. Because you need to sit down, you see, and talk through some stuff and understand some stuff and pray some stuff. It says, if you're sick and you, you haven't been able to uh, appropriate the healing from the Lord yourself, it says, call for the elders of the church, those with some uh, understanding or those who might have more faith than yourself, S come and sit down and talk together, he says, Explain things in your heart to one another that the prayer then might do the job. So I would always say, great, call people forward, but notice who comes and then after, make sure they get more time to be ministered to because if not, next week they'll come out again and they'll come out again and they'll come out again and the minister should say, oh, this needs to stop. You've come out six times in the last six weeks. We can't have this. Nothing's happening, obviously. We need to invest some time so we can bring about a change in your life. So you don't have to keep coming forward saying, what you're saying is nothing's changing, nothing's happening to me. It needs to in my life. Before then... Uh, we receive anything, there's, there's some, um, we have to prepare ourselves if we're going for ministry. I put three or four things here. Number one, we have to uh, clarify, regard the understanding, the areas that we need prayer in. Before you go for prayer, you should know what you're going for prayer about. We're dealing with rejection, so I'll just talk about this. We have to consider what are the roots in my life that need prayer? What are the fruits in my life that need prayer? When we looked at the, the roots, we said there are three basic roots. We said there was this root of rebellion, there was the root of self-rejection, and the fear of rejection. So are you always reacting against things all the time? That's usually a sign there's some rejection going on there. 
Are you always getting yourself in hot water because you're always angry or, or quarreling about something or, or sounding off? Or is it this self-rejection, this self-loathing, where you say, oh, I can't do anything, I'm no good and no one loves me, and just this self-loathing, or is it the fear of rejection, this timidity, this um, always drawing back, afraid to say anything, just being quiet all the time? Those are the roots. The fruits, well, multiple fruits grow off these trees. Anger, defensiveness, escapism, unable to cope, withdrawing. I mean, there's just loads of fruit from the roots of rejection. We need to be clear when we're going for ministry, having thought a little bit about it, what are the roots and what are the fruits? We have to ask the question, are we confronting demonic powers here or is it simply a question of healing? There isn't a demonic thing here, there's just we're so wounded that we need to be healed or is there a demonic presence that we need to deal with? I've said this before to you, I believe. Uh, uh, deliverance is removing the bullet before we bind up the wound and bring about healing. The third thing is you to prepare yourself before you go for ministry. Just spend some time waiting on God. Fasting, if you feel that's what God has called you to do. Maybe reading the scriptures about the, the subject that you want to receive ministry for. So you're doing everything you can possibly to, to make yourself ready to, as it were, have the Spirit of God minister to you. And the fourth thing I just put here, if you're going for ministry, is you must recognise the responsibility to change after ministry. See, what we do, we go for prayer and we hope that the person praying is going to fix it all. And we can go on with life, fine. I know, if God's going to fix something, he's going to change something, and that means he changes you. So you cannot, if you've gone for ministry and you just come out and you live just the same, nothing's happened. Because ministry will always produce change. You will become a different person. That's the whole idea. Otherwise, we deny the very work of what Christ has done on the cross for us. There's two major hurdles that we've got to get over here. Uh, the first one is, is the hurdle of repentance in this whole process. And the second one is the hurdle of forgiveness. So uh, between now and when we break, I'm just going to go through this whole business of what repentance really is. It's much more than saying sorry. Um, sorry is simply the start of, of, what the, of what repentance is. Now, whether you say sorry or not, I mean, we're very polite in this country. We say sorry and please for just about everything, but it's not essential. Uh, the, the sorry bit is not essential. <laughs> the, there's more to repentance than simply saying sorry. And if you just say sorry, that wasn't repentance. That was, you just said sorry. Okay. Repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of your thinking. It's a change of your emotion. It's a change of who you are as a person. A real change takes place. Sometimes we think, oh, I've said sorry and move on. Well, that didn't do anything. Saying sorry didn't achieve anything, actually. Did your mind change? Did your emotions change? Did your will change? 
It's a deliberate turning away from sin. That's a big step to say, I am never going to act like that again. By God's grace, I'll never do that again. I am turning, and it's not only turning, but it's walking towards God in a positive direction. That's what repentance is. It's a change of lifestyle, literally. It really, really is. And you will surprise yourself that you've changed. And people around you will say, you've changed. You're different. Something has happened. When repentance takes place, that should always happen. It should always happen. Otherwise, repentance has not happened at all. Rejection is a sin. You say, you mean people sinned against me? Well, it started like that. People did things against you, but then as you've carried this rejection, you have turned it into a sin. As I mentioned earlier, by not accepting what Christ has done to liberate you from this awful thing called rejection, by rejecting what Christ has done, that is a sin. So your rejection became your rejection. You rejected what Christ has done for you. You mustn't do this. You must receive everything that he has done for you. Allowing yourself to continue in the pain of rejection when Christ has gone to the cross to deliver you is a sin. It's a sin not to accept what he's done for you. We would say that of unbelievers, wouldn't we? We share the gospel with them and they reject Christ. And we say, that's a sin. He's done that for you and you've rejected him. And we might even say, it's the unforgivable sin. It's the sin where there's no way back. To reject Christ, that's it. That's unforgivable in the sight. God can forgive all sin, but to reject Christ, he can't, he can't have anything to work with there. This repentance then, it's in, it's in stages. One of the classic examples of someone who repented for us was, was David. Remember David, uh, he had the affair. And then somehow he lived above everyone else and he didn't see that he had done anything wrong. Whether he was just blinded from the truth or just didn't want to hear, I, I don't really know. Or so taken up with himself, I don't know. So the prophet had to come and say, you've done this, David. And so as, it's, as it dawns upon him, as God makes it clear to him, he recognises his responsibility for the whole affair. And it wasn't a fair. He takes responsibility for it and he responds to God. See, if you identify rejection in yourself, take responsibility for it. Go to God, accept your responsibility and then respond to God in what he wants you to do. I'm sorry I flipped it around. 
If you felt that you were the one that was hard done by and all these other people should have done something, but now I've put it on you, well, I sort of apologise, but that's the truth of where it is. It's, it's between you and God, you see. What these people have done, it, it doesn't really matter between you and God. You want the healing from God, so you've got to deal with yourself before God. And in Psalm 51, David says this, he says, creating me, God, a pure heart. He's referring to this situation of this sin that he committed. He knew he wasn't right before God. He says, creating me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You see, his spirit had moved. It wasn't, it wasn't there in line with God, in relationship with God. Somehow he had moved from that steadfast place. He said, do not cast me uh, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me again, he says, a willing spirit. He says, I want a steadfast spirit, Lord, that I don't miss it and I want a willing spirit that I can know that you are sustaining me in my life. Now, under the new covenant, and thank God that we live in the new covenant, God will never cast us away. So to take that verse and to preach to New Testament saints on it is not, is not a smart thing to do. Use it in its right context. God will not cast you away. He can't do that. Because of the blood of Christ, you've been drawn nigh unto him. And he won't take the presence of the Holy Spirit away from you either. He won't do that. He's come to dwell in you. So we're in a, a far better wonderful place in the New Testament. But you see, all sin that we harbour creates a barrier between us and God. It's not a barrier for God. It's a barrier that we've created. God hasn't moved. We've moved. God is still there. He's still your father. He's still loving you. He's still loving you. But, but, but you've done something. You've done something. And therefore you have to remove it by his grace from your life. We must not stay where we are when we're feeling rejected. We must turn and move towards God so he can bring about the healing that he wants to. Another verse that is quite striking about uh, repentance is that found in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10. It says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So if you're going to repent, you must do it the way the Bible says. Godly sorrow. There is a sorrow in the world. The, the comparison that we can look at here is, is Peter and Judas. Uh, Peter obviously came with godly sorrow. What he had how he had denied the Lord, remember, and then he wept bitterly and he ran from his presence as it was genuine godly sorrow. And of course, he found salvation in that. Whereas Judas wasn't sorry for what he'd done. He perhaps was sorry that it hadn't worked or uh, whatever reason, but there was no repentance in there. The word there is, it was full of remorse that it didn't work out the way that he wanted. And of course, it led to death. There is the possible suggestion that because repentance is granted to us by God, 
God never granted Judas repentance. Perhaps he couldn't repent. He wasn't allowed to repent. That's a possibility. So in this repentance that I'm talking about, there's pain. There is pain. It, it is. It's not just, oh, I'm sorry, moving on. Oh, no, there's, nothing's happened then. It will take some time. It will cause pain. We must expose ourselves to God uh, in repentance. We must allow time for it to take its effect and to bring about the healing. Remember when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost? Uh, powerful sermon, obviously. It said it cut to the very hearts of the people that they shouted out, what must we do then? What must we do? He'd brought them to a place of repentance, you see. They'd seen they were doing something wrong. They were acting wrong, thinking wrong, moving in the wrong direction. What shall we do? He says, you must turn around in your actions and move towards God and not away from God. When the people heard this, it says, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? He said, you've got to repent. There must be repentance if we're ever going to experience this deliverance from rejection that is destroying us, that is robbing us of understanding the love of God. God's word is like a scalpel, isn't it? And it cuts deep to remove what's killing us. It penetrates into the heart not to hurt us, but to heal us. We'll have a break there and come back and deal with that other hurdle, which is unforgiveness. Thank you. Welcome back then to the second part. We've really enjoyed the testimonies of uh, the previous weeks, and I'll ask someone again this evening just to uh, share a testimony uh, regarding his experience, I suppose, in, in being set free or whatever he wants to share with you. So Simon, come and share that testimony. I, um, I went to a, uh, uh, an inner city London primary school and uh, had a wonderful time there. Um, but it turned out that it was, it was in a school with an awful lot of families that had come in from overseas. And I was utilized primarily to help the other children start to learn English. And I was quite a talkative little chap, and that's never changed. And so, so that's how I was utilized. So then we moved from London up to the north of England to quite an elite primary school up there, very, very... Um, well regarded and it turned out and I was about eight years old uh, it turned out that I could not read I just hadn't learned to read I could talk but I couldn't read um, and so I was struggling for the first couple of years there really uh, really badly and I got to um, what would have been my year five um, and I had a, a, a teacher by the name of Mrs. Jones, 
And she asked the whole class what we would like to do with our lives. And I said, I want to go to Cambridge and read English. I couldn't read a thing. And the whole class just burst out laughing, you know. And, um, uh, and I was like, why are they laughing? What's so, what's so wrong with that? And, uh, and so anyway, she ultimately, I found out years later, she ultimately went in to uh, the staff room and she told one of her colleagues, Mrs. Stansfield, who was going to be my year six teacher, how preposterous this was that this kid had said this. And Mrs. Stansfield decided to make it her personal mission that not only was she going to catch me up in reading, but she was going to get me past the 11 plus as well, which is exactly what she did. And, uh, and so I had this, this absolute, my heart was set on going to Cambridge to, to read English. And, um, it, and of course, then I moved to America and all of this happened. Well, by hook and by crook, by the time I turned 20, I walked on to Cambridge University to study in an exchange program uh, to learn English. But, um, uh, and, and I just, I, I mean, I did all kinds of things to make that happen. But what I learned was, what I really learned from that is that um, that wasn't God's plan. That was Simon's plan. And that was the beginning of a long period of time spent away from God because I was doing my plan. I was doing it my way and not following God's plan for my life. Uh, and it took many, many decades uh, for that plan to materialize. But so sometimes when we're rejected by the world, our response has got to be um, in God. It's got to be God's response to the world, not our own. And I learned that the hard way. God's plan then is to bless us and prosper us as we yield our lives to him. I said there was a second uh, major hurdle to uh, getting the healing and appropriating the uh, deliverance and health into our lives, and that's the hurdle of unforgiveness. In dealing with rejection, there'll always be somebody to forgive in your life, without a doubt, or someone you hold unforgiveness towards, which you have to deal with. Jesus goes into a lot of teaching, we know in Matthew chapter 18, I won't look at that passage now, where he, he talks about uh, forgiving people and of course if we fail to forgive then uh, God is, is tired, he can't forgive us, we have to show mercy to receive mercy. C.S. Lewis said this, he said everybody says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have someone to forgive. So um, that's probably true. How does forgiveness then affect us, or rather, how does unforgiveness affect us? It is, it is almost as important as the whole aspect of uh, repentance and turning 
this massive thing that we've got to do in forgiving people. And simply just to say, well, I've forgiven them, you know that's not true because it comes back again and again or they're, they're there. You've, you've locked them on the inside of you and they're doing some harm to you. We've been forgiven much, Scripture says. Uh, sometimes we don't think we have. We think we're all right. Uh, we did got a favour in getting saved even. I mean, we weren't really bad in the sight of God and his holy presence. We were awful, terrible. So he has given, forgiven us a lot. It far exceeds anything that we've got to forgive in other people. We were opposed to God. We walked away from him. We ignored him. We wanted nothing to do with him. And yet he forgave us. God's grace and mercy is promoted, as it were, by forgiveness. That's what, that's what causes him to move forward. So when we look at God, we've got to look at ourselves. We have got to move forward constantly, be motivated in our relationships by forgiveness all the time. We will always have people offend us, say things against us, do things against us, but every day we move forward in this way of forgiveness. As we said in that parable, to not to forgive, it actually compromises God in his ability to show us mercy, and it cuts us off. Unforgiveness, just like repentance or not seeking repentance, is, uh, it's a sin. No matter what happens to you, two wrongs never make a right. So we can't justify what we do. We can't retaliate. Never. We can never do that. It's never justifiable. Unforgiveness will be judged by God. He will judge it. Unforgiveness imprisons the one who cannot forgive. I heard this illustration of it. It's like inside we have this cage of people that we haven't forgiven. And every now and again we open the cage and get them out and we abuse them. Usually it's verbally. And we get angry and we say things about them. And then when we finish doing that, we put them back in the cage again and we shut the door, just waiting for next time when we can get them out again and do the same thing again. We've got to open the cage and let them go. Let everyone go. Let them go. Don't harbour them within your heart. They'll poison you. When Jesus tells the parable uh, and the unforgiving servant, he, he's cast into prison, he says, you'll stay there and you'll be tormented until you've paid back every penny. It's a harsh story. And so we are open to the tormentor if we do not forgive people. Unforgiveness then can be a great barrier to us receiving uh, the healing that we require uh, in our relationships, not only with God, but with everyone else. It says when Jesus went to the cross, he destroyed barriers that were between us and God and between one another. Jesus went to pull down barriers you know, we're very good at building up these walls again, whether it's between us and God, where we create laws that separate us from God, or we create barriers from one another. 
See what he says in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace. He is our peace. Remember, he has entered into you, so your peace is him being in you, his peace. Who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. He's talking about the barrier that existed between us and God. He said through his death on the cross, he has destroyed that. He has removed that thing, the barrier, the law barrier between us and him. His purpose, he says, was to create in himself one new man out of two. He's talking about there were the Jews and the Gentiles. Really, we're one new people. We're a new species of being. We have to be very careful about the teaching that separates Jews and Gentiles. We don't want to be separate. We're one people. We are Israel. That's how the New Testament calls us. We've become one. We haven't become Jewish, but he says, I've taken the Jews and I've taken the Gentiles and I've brought them together in Christ. And now we have a new species of being and we call them Christians. You're Christians followers of Christ, a new man out of two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Christ can put hostility to death. He's done it. He's done it on the cross. And so when we find this situation, we have to again appropriate what Christ has done and bring it into our existence so we remove any hostility from our life. Forgiveness, it's a process. It is, just like repentance is a process. It's not an instant thing. It takes time. When we say sorry, it's just the first step of repentance. When we say, I forgive you, that's usually the first step of forgiving. It's just the first step, but it's, it's a good step to take. It's, it's a determination, it's a declaration. From there on now, we have to work at this thing and make sure that we are one again. He brings people together. I found that when I've forgiven, often the pain comes back about the person and if I dwell on that I allow myself to become antagonistic towards the person again or the situation or whatever it is. I've got to deal with that. I've got to shut myself down. If I dwell on it for any moment of time it will take a root in me again and I feel the work that Christ has done, I've undone it. And it will bring pain back into my life again. So having willed to forgive, I know if I stay with that will, then my emotion will catch up and I'll be released from any pain. If someone has hurt us, it can affect the way that we see them. In fact, when someone's hurt you, you don't want to see them, do you? If you know they're going to be there, you don't go or you don't look at them, or you look in the other direction. Forgiveness can change your vision of a person, you see. It can change your vision. You start to speak about them differently. You start to pray for them. 
It affects the way that we feel about them. Forgiveness, it'll soften us in our hearts. It may even give us compassion to love them again. It affects the way that we talk about them. Forgiveness will help us to be more patient about them. It affects our attitude. Forgiveness will not want to get even. It won't. And it affects our ongoing relationship. Forgiveness can make for a new beginning. It's not good enough to say, I've forgiven them, but you stay over there and I'll stay over here. That's one more step closer, I get that. But the step is that we embrace them and we restore and we bring it even to a better place than it was before. I often think of those words of Jesus on the cross, what he accomplished when he said, forgive them, Father. We might come back to that one a little bit later. So in this forgiveness, in this healing of the rejection that we're suffering, we probably need inner healing. Even if deliverance is necessary, which can be in many cases, we need to be set free from a spirit, especially if we've lived with it for many years, there's the hurts that need to be healed. The memories that keep coming back and back and back that just open the wound again and again. We have to surrender them, as it were, to God's Holy Spirit. And somehow, miraculously, the Spirit heals and restores. It'll take time. We must allow the emotions to come to the surface. Whatever the emotion is, there will be weeping, probably, of the hurt that was suffered. But we mustn't suppress that. We must allow it to come and then deal with it. If it's demonic, well, expect the manifestations of whatever it is. Remove that. Get it out the way. Broken relationships in Christ not can be restored. They must be restored. They must, and we must take every effort to bring restoration. If we've received the healing, received the deliverance, received this teaching, put it into practice, turned away, started moving to God, putting it all together again, you see the onus falls upon us to do it. It's not, it, won't, it won't just happen. It takes a lot of work on our part. It is a big problem. It's bigger than what we ever think it is in the church because we're good at hiding stuff, appearing all right, but these deep wounds, they need dealing with. We need, I believe, that once we're moving through this, we need pastoral care all the time. Now, when I say pastoral care, I don't mean from the pastor. He can't handle it. It's too much. Because if he's got a congregation of 100 people in him, they all need pastoral care. They all need taking through things. See, what we want to do is just preach a sermon and go home, and then you work it out. That doesn't work. That never works. As I said in the first part, that doesn't work. A quick prayer doesn't do it, or a sermon doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. You need to walk through it with somebody. Every believer graduates from being a sheep to a shepherd, all of us, not one, 
you know, if you're just depending on the vicar or the pastor or the minister, we're not going to, this stuff isn't going to work. Let's see what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 20. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciles us to himself through Christ. This is the next bit. And gave us, every one of us, a ministry of reconciliation. We have a ministry. Number one, just like Jesus came, reconciling men to God and man to man, we have a ministry, us, reconciling other people to God and man to man, one to one. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So he has given us the ministry of reconciliation and he has committed it to us. He's put it in our hands. If we don't do it, it doesn't happen. There's no point in him giving it and then him doing it. He doesn't do that. He seldom does that. We're therefore, it says, we're Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We have the work to help people become reconciled, to help them walk in love, to help them walk in forgiveness towards one another. People can't do it in isolation. They just can't carry on. They need help and support. God has designed the church that way. It's designed that we have relationships, that we have groups, that we have friendships, that we listen to one another, we, we build a friendship and we support one another in it. Once set free, it's so foolish to think the person could now survive on their own. They're easy picking for the devil. They need help and support and understanding and care all the way through. Discipline is needed for the Christian life. Just going to work through a little list of things here about it. After healing or deliverance in this whole area of rejection where we have repented, where we have uh, been forgiving and we've gone through that process, there needs to be someone to continue talking to us, finding out how we're getting on. See, the trouble with it, it's labour-intensive. It is. And so it's just almost an impossible task for us because everything Christian is labour-intensive. It just takes one person talking to another person, walking with another person, encouraging another person. That's how it works. Christ knows all about labour-intensiveness. I mean, he was just there all the time. He gave his life to us. And so we have to give our lives to our brothers and sisters to support them and help them and talk with them and help them through it. With the scriptures, we have to read it. We have to apply it to ourselves and we have to live it out. As you read the scriptures, this is spirit and life, it says. It's not just words on a page. Spirit and life enters into us and so it becomes life-giving. It restores us. But then we have, in having read it and understood it and it ministered to us, we must walk through it in faith. We must live it out in our lives. 
We have to learn to communicate with God. Just keep talking to him all the time. It's prayer. But it's not praying. It's prayer. It's just talking to God. Walking in a relationship with him all of the time. Listening and talking. Listening and talking. Expecting him to say something to us. Expecting him to show us something. Walk with an expectation of hearing from God all of the time. Ask him a question. Expect an answer. Pose him a problem. Expect him to speak back to you. He might speak through someone else or through something. But as you wait on it, you will hear the voice of God. You will know when God communicates to you. The battleground is almost always the area of our emotions. He just works on them completely because it seems they're at the front. They seem to affect us the most and often they control people's lives, their responses, what they do and what they don't do. The enemy will continually attack that area of your emotion. In Christ, we can control the way that we think. You tear down, it says, imaginations that, that come against you from him. Soon as you know it's wrong, you don't pursue that thought any longer. You don't allow yourself to dwell on it. You just get rid of it as quickly as you possibly can. We can renew our mind using these disciplines. And Satan's attack is relentless. Day after day after day. He doesn't sleep. And if you're wanting to do something for God, pushing out, as it were, trying to make a difference, try, he's interested in you. You're the very one he wants to shut down, close down, bring under attack constantly. He wants you to back off and do nothing so he doesn't have to worry about you anymore. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9 says, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Remember that verse? It's where Paul is being buffeted, let alone all the other things he suffered in life, the whole catalogue in the chapter before. It's, it's harrowing, really. And yet he constantly knew, because of the, the advances he was seeking to make in the kingdom of God, he constantly knew the pressure upon him all the time. And God would say, listen, you have to walk through that because my grace is sufficient for you. And under the pressure of it, my power will be made perfect in your life. We mustn't dodge the issue or try and duck it or move out the way of what God wants us to do. But press on in and expect his grace to be there. Being positive does not mean unreality. Uh, sometimes we make a confession and people say that's, that's ridiculous, that's not real. See, it's what the Bible says about us is real. The way we talk about ourselves needs to be challenged continually. We need to say what God says about us, not what we think about ourselves, not even what other people say about us. As we, as we focus on what the Word of God says, we will move towards that as we move towards God and what we see will become a reality in our lives. I am a child of God. 
His spirit lives in me. I'm no longer a slave to the sin of rejection. My joy is complete because I walk in forgiveness. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That means I'm a blessing to you tonight, wherever you are, because I come in the name of the Lord. I am a blessing to you. And because we want to be a blessing wherever we go, in whatever relationship we find ourselves. I am alive in Christ. I am loved by God and he gave himself for me. I am blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You say, well, I don't feel like that today. It doesn't matter. The confession of his word is vital to us. We must learn to relate to God as a father, as I expressed earlier. Often our self-worth and our value has been undermined constantly. Don't worry, there's been enough people to tell you what rubbish you are and how you're failing and how you're no good. And we can all put our hand up to that. <laughs> it's just constant in this world. It's constant. Don't recognise uh, failure as defeat. We will fail because we're trying to do something hard sometimes, difficult, special. We're trying to push through. We will fail, but we're not defeated because we fail. We've all got L plates on. We will step into the next world and all that will change for us. Don't isolate yourself from other people. See, that's what the devil wants to do all the time. Cut you off. The Word of God says we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and sense. We're to love our brother and sister and we're to love ourselves. So the devil's job is to get you first not to love yourself, not to love your brother and sister, then not to love God. And when he separated you from those three, you're on your own. And he's, he's won. You're defeated. You're smashed already. You can't win. So we must be in relationship. We must walk uh, Loving ourselves, not in a, a funny, egotistical sort of way, but realising who we are in Christ and that he really does love us. We're to resist the enemy. See the enemy for who he is. Speak against him. Speak to him. Tell him to go. Resist him. Our prayers, of course, we pray to God, but your prayer should also have a part where you're resisting the devil. I've, I've attended scores of prayer meetings where no one resists the devil. They spend the whole time submitting and, and praying to God, which is a wonderful thing. But part of that gathering together is to stand against the enemy, to put him in his place and to speak against him and to take authority over him as the children of God in the earth. We get what we expect. So expect freedom. Expect to walk in freedom. Don't dwell in the past. If you do, you'll always dwell in the times when it didn't work out, in the negative things, when things went wrong. There's no benefit. You can't change it. It's gone. Really, we can't change the future either. We can be optimistic about the future, but we live for today. That's what Jesus said. He said, tomorrow's got enough problems. Live for today. Live 
in the moment that Christ is with you now. If I find myself reminiscing, and I reminisce on the good things. My life sounds wonderful when I reminisce, but there's a lot of dodgy stuff out there uh, that I don't even recall. And it's funny, you know, if you choose not to recall it, when you do go there, you can't even remember some of the details or even the people's names that were involved because you've cut it out somehow. You've left it, it's gone. And we live for today with a great expectation of the future. Paul said, didn't he, forgetting what is behind and straining what is ahead of me, I press on to lay hold of that for which I haven't yet laid hold of, but I will do. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Don't let yourself dwell on the negative. Humour minimises fear and anger. Are you a humorous person? Can you have a good laugh? Or are you a misery? Okay. Now, the world is a very serious place and fighting the devil is a serious thing and, you know, we have terrible things to deal with in life. But God has given us humour for a very good reason. We need to laugh every day. If you're only laughing at yourself, at least have a good laugh, okay? But we need humour, because humour, it lightens it. It just deals with fear and anger in a very special way. That is why God has given it to us. He said the joy of the Lord is your strength, after all. Jesus was and is full of joy. He developed it in his character. I hate those pictures where he just glides across the screen, you know, as some uh, person who is solid and... Jesus was fun to be with. I reckon he played football. Well, I don't actually, I think he played rugby, but never mind, no. You know, he was normal, he was, he was full of life and vitality, and those young men, the, the disciples, they were only probably uh, late teenagers, early 20-year-old men. Uh, if, you, if you study like the years that the, uh, John, uh, John is an example of this. If John actually walked with Jesus, he must have been like a teenager when he did it uh, for all the years to fit in when they try and work out all the dates. And so were all the others. They were young men full of life and vitality and fun and just like, and Jesus was there with them. Of course, there was this serious side and what he had to do, but he knew that they had to have joy in their life. He understood this. It says in Proverbs 17 and 22, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And Psalm 2 and verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven, what does he do? He laughs. And what does he laugh at? He laughs at the fact that the enemy thinks that he can overpower him or his people. He laughs in scorn at him. We need to laugh at the enemy. Laugh at the enemy. Because he laughs. He laughs through us. And we're told at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And we are seated in heavenly places with Christ at his right hand, enjoying his pleasures. I hope this has helped you. And um, if 
rejection is a problem to you that you don't think, oh well, I know quite a lot about it now and do nothing, then I failed. I failed in what I sought to do. I want you to move away from it. I want you to walk towards God and in walking towards him, that rejection has got to go. That unforgiveness has got to go because you can't keep moving towards God and harbour those things in your heart. And so whether you need to seek ministry or get some help or talk to someone or pray through stuff and, and be prepared to go through the ministry and be honest and open, I pray that you'll find you get yourself free to enjoy the wonderful thing that Christ has won for you on the cross. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed the rejection module and please come back next week as we start a new module called Spiritual Conflict. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, please do so by going to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. Also, you can follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy. Thank you.